Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on May the 3rd, 2015. You know, reality is a fascinating subject because most people think they live in reality and are completely aware of all reality around them and outside of them that affects them. They think they understand it, but they don't because they haven't been taught how to do it or to see through the smoke screens of managerial systems which run the world and our minds as well. We really are then product of indoctrinations. And indoctrinations can be straightforward through education or through the movies that you watch, especially through fiction. They're a fantastic way to indoctrinate with new opinions and ideas and what's politically correct to update you, if you like. But the media of all kinds does the same kind of thing. They set the trends and the memes through the various columns that they have, and people jump on board. Uh, it's quite amazing to watch because people jump on board things which they think are new and which they think they either agree with without thinking too much at all about them, and they just simply jump on board and fall. Fashion's a good example of that, especially with the young and how, depending on their personality type, and there's not many personality types in the category, that is, of the young. You have the ones who are introverted, extroverted. You get the ones who, are, I think, they're rebels. They go through that rebellious phase, they think. And other ones are more accepting of a system of their parents and so on. Very few of them today, because most of the young are programmed by the school and by popular media and fiction to go through what they think is their, their own generational rebellion, never realizing that the topics that they're pushing and rebelling against and, and what to do about them are given to them by outside forces that they're even unaware of because they, people learn by osmosis. They kind of soak it in through bits and pieces or bits and bites, you might say of information that's constant and repetitive from various sources, and therefore they adopt the opinions, as adults do too, mind you, without doing too much critical thinking about them. And you're led to your opinions and conclusions in the average news piece by the way the commentary goes. News is seldom as news. It's a commentary bringing you and guiding you to the opinion, and they do it by simply omitting certain other sides of any story, and you're left with the, the desired and proper conclusion and on the topic. And I noticed this when I was very young, by simply listening to other people expressing what they thought were their opinions, either current or whatever it happened to be through education. And I always found it fascinating as to why they simply accepted these opinions. But the fact was they thought they were arriving at their own conclusions and opinions by themselves. And nothing is further from the truth. It's not a new art. It's more specialized today for sure. And because of the internet and cell phones and constant monitoring under the guise of terrorism and so on, everyone's completely categorized with their personality profile. And every site they look up, every interest they have is known by various agencies, private and governmental agencies that actually work together because you don't live in anything, any system of democracy at all, and you never ever have. Therefore, when you look at the, the old writings on people management, often written as a form of resume for kings like Machiavelli 
and Francis Bacon and so on, you find out what they already knew about, say, the masses, the general mass of people. And when they talk about the masses, they're talking about the regular things they'll all kind of agree on, the need for food, the need for some kind of um, security and not end up being nervous wrecks every day wondering if they can get something to eat or, or will they be safe and so on. And they knew how to promote the authority of the king or queen uh, very, very well back then. And as time progressed and the ages went on, we come up to the present time, all through the 20th century to the present, massive, massive amounts of data has been collected by the various social branches in psychology and behaviorism, and now it's neuroscience and neurolinguistics, uh, things like that, which used to be called psycholinguistics, where words are used in string sentences, them together in sentences, and you end up being brought very carefully and, and cleverly and expertly to the desired opinion that they want you to have, because all we have is data to go on, and those who supply the data understand the power which they wield over the people. I've mentioned the big think tanks that debate how to manage us, and they work out formulas of managing the public to get them to go along with various programs, which, again, private corporations, which are often are interwoven completely with government, and foundations, of course, non-governmental tax-free foundations, which supply the money and all the training to the NGOs, non-governmental organizations, all working together. And you don't realize how many different sources supply the data that you constantly, you actually unconsciously soak up on a day-to-day basis by little quips. Even on the radio driving to work, if you listen to the radio, they give you the, the so-called current news, little sound bites of what they claim. Then you know it all, right? A little sound bite on each topic, and now you know it all. Uh, but that's how folk get their, their opinions shaped too. And here's current for the day. Uh, here's what's obsolete, um, things like that. And even the, the regular talk shows in AM, uh, which are in every city across the world, basically. It's the same format with the same talking head that, that doesn't take a breath. In fact, they, they claim that when they train them, they can't have what they call dead air. Dead air. Now, if you had someone sitting across a table in your house, in your kitchen, talking to you like that, you'd have to tell them to shut up, to, get, to let you have time to think, because people don't normally talk like that to each other. But on radio, it's a constant bombardment, and the faster they can talk, and the more skillfully they can talk, putting across things, it tends to make you sit back in your head and simply get downloaded by the person's yapping, excessive yapping, an old technique. In fact, many of the North American Christian groups uh, were the ones who supplied uh, some of the leaders who really perfected that kind of technique in old tent preacher days where the fast talker, uh, shoving in emotion and so on, it would carry you away so quickly and so fast uh, by speech that you didn't have time to really sit back and digest anything, any one sentence that you were saying. 
And so eventually your brain gives up and it takes a back seat and gets downloaded by the data and emotion is dragged into it too. So we're managed on so many levels by simply profit-making industries like like generally city AM stations who want the ratings and they give you motive topics on family pets or being abused or something. What do you think about it? And then uh, and they come, all, all different shades, all arguing with each other. It's so easy to switch people on and off. But in a higher topic, of course, where it affects all of the people, uh, then you go into your mainstream authorised news agencies to get your opinions on things, your trusted networks, as I say, or trusted news. And they're all at the same game, even repeating by themselves that the most trusted man in Canada or the most trusted uh, newscaster in the US, or Britain for that matter, has an amazing effect. It really sucks folk into it because it's repetition, repetition, repetition. So we're, we're manipulated by so many techniques all around us every day. And the idea also keeps you off balance to an extent, so you won't think for yourself. Most folk, truly, if you ask them in the street the, 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 about how well-informed they are, they'll tell you, if they listen to mainstream, oh, they think they're really pretty well-informed. And all they know is little bits and pieces that they quote almost verbatim that's been given to them. Because you'll notice embedded in all the different pieces they put out there on the mainstream, they have little slogan-type pieces, uh, sentences that stand out and are repeated from, again, a thousand sources. And the, the people in the street will repeat them back to you quite without thinking. Like it's, it's just quite natural, like gravity. Now, I've gone over many times in the past the beginnings of some of the major foundations, their purpose and their future purpose, because they guide us into all futures, you see. And it, these, these big foundations put their own members into government and bureaucracies. And if you look into the, the data is there if you seek it out. Well, some of it is to do with the basic things. And they'll tell you that, for instance, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which is the same organization for Britain, and the ones for every country, by the way, even ones in Japan and in China, all of this one organization, these different names for different countries, you'll find they're all running the media uh, in those countries, they're running the financial systems, federal banks and so on in these countries, and they also run foreign affairs for the governments, especially foreign affairs, very important and in all major parts of your government institution. So you have one world system, really, that was started off an awful long time ago by the group founded in England, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. But they also have many, many, many big major think tanks funded by their private front groups that supply the cash and the expertise to start off the big think tanks to get them on, on the right track for investigative um, thinking on any particular problem, on any agenda that they want to bring forth, and the problems that they might get backlashes from the public. How do you manage the public? Like a chess game they play in advance, uh, and with all the moves in it, before they even give you a whiff in the newspapers. And they make sure, because their members also uh, run all the major chains for news and media outlets, they don't say much at all about what they're really up to. 
you'll simply hear about the Trilateral Commission once in a blue moon. I mean a blue moon. And its effect is tremendous because really it comes from the old Council on Foreign Relations, these were special branches. And the active group that implements policies, drafts up policies for integrations of countries into blocks, for instance, like the European Union, uh, the Free Trade Association that became NAFTA, North American Free Trade, and now with the whole lots to get blended into Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's all done by uh, the, the, the implementing group of the CFR called the Trilateral Commission. And they also have members, as I say, in Japan and China and all other countries across the planet. They run the world. They admit themselves are a private group. And yet they run your politics for you. I've spoken ad nauseum about this over the past many, many years. But the think tanks that they have, some of them specialize on the human condition and how to manage us all collectively, you see. And in that collective, they have us cut down into groups again. What kind of personality group do you fall into? And that's why you have all these personality profiling being going on for years and years, even before the computer. And now the computer's made it so easy for them. You have you, they have you completely updated daily by the stuff that you look into on the internet and by all your chats and everything else. It's all collected and analyzed and put into your personality profile. So there's nothing new in that at all. But what really got me is that over the years, too, I've had people from within these think tanks or have left who sent me <laughs> brown envelopes on the quiet uh, on the different cultures across the world and how to manage them from these top think tanks, names that you would actually know very well. And remember, if you're managing the world, including what you're promoting, as new political correct ideas, which can be completely fictitious. As long as you adopt them, you're a good person, a good citizen, you see. Uh, even if it's crazy, they'll make a craziness sound logical by their techniques. But they themselves, at the top, who manage the world, must have the real data and go by the real facts, you see. So they give one for you, the general population, to make you a good, uh, well-behaved citizen, and they have ones for themselves to manage us all. And what they say about the different cultures is astonishing, to see how well they've investigated each particular country and its culture. Right down to facial expressions, uh, the types of expressions, the absence of those expressions in other cultures, and things like that. Because this is all used even in cartoons for the little children to see. These, these expressions uh, can see a lot more than any, any sentence or paragraph, basically. Uh, look at the simple drawings you get for the, the glum face, a little circle with a dung-turned mouth, things like that. Uh, it's amazing how the think tanks have literally studied us all with behaviorists, again, psychologists and neuroscientists, and anthropologists going into all of this kind of stuff. And uh, what got me onto that initially was Carl Jung years ago wrote about the different cultures and their facial expressions and personality types and so on, and how some cultures don't look you in the eye, for instance. It can be an insult to look people in the eye. Uh, that's only an insult in the West if you look the king or the queen in an eye. Or with Hillary Clinton's case, when she was uh, the first lady of the White House, 
with Bill Clinton, uh, she didn't let any of the staff who worked there look her in the eye, just like royalty, you see, which is a status thing. But in other cultures, some other cultures, you're not allowed, this is bad form to do it to anybody, including your neighbor, and so on. But they also went into her speech, and her speech is awfully important. Because we know, for instance, that if you go into the speech of uh, people who live in China, uh, often different parts of their brains will uh, light up, given the same problems you would in the West, uh, than those in the West. Different parts of their brain will work on those problems according to the language and according to the type of language, if it's a kind of hieroglyphic type language or pictorial language, or, or if it's a written one as we do in the West. So it's quite fascinating how we're so studied, it's just astonishing. And the whole idea, of course, is to unlock the secrets of conditioning and controlling and programming the people. If they understand these things, then they understand why they work and investigate like crazy into why they work uh, so they can do more work on the perfect trained society, uh, which is pretty well there already in some countries already. For instance, I don't think in China you would have any problems with major revolutions there at all, or even minor ones to an extent. You'll see them rioting once in a while when the really low classes and outlying areas outside cities are, are getting not getting the help they needed uh, when there's been tremendous winter storms, things like that, or the shortage of food. But uh, they won't have, not, there's no fear for an overthrow there. And in the West, of course, they're more overt with it because... The West has been a problem to world government ideas for an awful long time, even though those who, who originated the idea seem to have originated in the West itself. Because the Western people have always had a free, an idea done through their historical progress of a type of freedom. Uh, it's like freedom's just a word we use for nothing left to lose. It's a good saying from a song, but we have this thing in us, this freedom issue. It's been a thorn in the side of controllers of peoples in the West. In China, you never really had that so much because uh, they respect uh, and fear power. Uh, and those who uh, traditionally had power in China over the centuries exercised it ruthlessly when, when required. I mean ruthlessly. And it's a different family structure. They're very, very close family structures and so on, but they do respect power. But what interested me too from one of the top think tanks was how they'd studied, say for instance, the Chinese vocabulary and how they speak, right down to how they speak. And they said it's almost from the front of their mouth in a baby type talk uh, with the kind of syllables and so on and consonants that they use. So they can afford to be straight with, with, with each other when they're, they're, they're dealing with people that they're going to rule or do rule and so on. And again, don't think for a second, they haven't done it with Africa and, say, Britain and every other country too. It's quite fascinating to see how they, they work in all these things into particular psychological patterns, which also affect your behavior and so on all from just even the way that you speak, the type of words that are used or given to use, and, and how they're pronounced, etc. It's quite fascinating indeed. So anyway, all of these are, are, are meant for control purposes. That's the point of it all. How do you control this type of culture and personality versus that kind of culture and personality?
And we know, for instance, that the Soviet system was intensely into this, uh, even before the Bolshevik Revolution, some of the scientists there were into the idea at that time of creating a new kind of human being. They thought they'd make the new Soviet man eventually. And after the revolution, they had the, the, that whole that books turned out on the Soviet man and woman, what they would create to be the perfect, obedient, hardworking citizen. That's never stopped from any ruler's perspective. Today, of course, we live in Charles Galton Darwin's system, where he wrote in his book, The Next Million Years, he says, slavery has always been in existence. In the West, too, he's talking about. Uh, it says, since the beginning of time. And it says, we are now in the process. It says, always existed in some form or another. And that's a, a very telling thing. Remember, <laughs> when you get, they used to call them wage slaves, for instance. You get minimum pay, uh, you're kept uh, in, in minimum living conditions, and minimum life for that matter, and you can be worked to the bone. Uh, but those kind of systems, they need more uh, overt power, the threat of power and so on, to keep you in check, to make sure you obey, especially with Western-type cultures. Uh, so, But he says, well, there's always been slavery in existence in one form or another down through the ages. And he says, we are now, we are now in the process of creating a more sophisticated form of slavery. Now, this ties in with the whole program, by the way, of the amalgamation of nations into trading blocks, which in turn come under uh, a world body. So each, each trading block will have a parliament system, and then there'll be a world governing body above that. And it's all done through governance, as they say, where you have different panels from, again, non-profit organizations all run by the same institution at the top, unelected, really planning the whole future, and we're already in it, by the way, for, for everybody on Earth. Now, this organization called Royal Institute for International Affairs <clears throat> initially came out, they claimed, as a non-profit organization, and they were given a royal charter to exist. Now, remember, everything gets the title royal, is technically privately owned. It's not uh, a national thing, as you would think, unless the Queen, for instance, owns all of Britain. But it's given a charter to exist as such. When you join up the military, you're, you're called a private. You're, pri- you're, owned, you're owned privately. You're no longer a member at, of the public as long as you're in uniform. And they're all... Uh, society is, is also a part of the same institution. Their job is to direct academia and what sciences to teach and what, and believe me, there are, there are beliefs now in sciences and what beliefs to teach for sciences with ecology or anything else for that matter. What's the right one to do uh, for, again, a big global agenda? Academia is a big part of this same agency. Remember the branch in America? is called the Council on Foreign Relations and they have branches across the world, as I've mentioned already, with different names so that people don't connect them. It isn't until you see their global meetings and who attends uh, and what associations they'll call them in other countries that you, you actually clue into what's going on to bring about this world population, all pretty well the same to an extent. Um, 
with minor variations and adjustments for the personality type of the culture. And you realize that it's all academia, it's all newscasting, and so on. Academia is very important, remember, because they don't simply pick out their future members in a managerial class for managing people across the world in academia. They must train them to believe what they're being taught as well, those same managers. And those who clue in are a bit more psychopathic than the rest and streetwise can sniff out what's the right thing to say or push, you see. And they get the good marks, they get picked out, they know what questions not to ask. That's awfully important for promotion. And and then you get up the ladder in managerial positions, including government. Because government, under the system, which already exists, by the way, and has for a long time, is uh, is a system of promotion where you, you know what not to ask. You'll have general, a vague idea of the main topic in, in various areas, but... Uh, and maybe a, a, almost a certainty of, of the conclusions, but you don't ask the questions. You simply obey orders and push what you're told to push, and you get a little gold star and you're pushed up the ladder. That's how it really works, and you're well rewarded financially. But the Council on Foreign Relations really has put precedence in of all parties for about 100 years now, even before it was called Council on Foreign Relations and before the Royal Institute for International Affairs was called this, that name too. And we know that by Carl Quigley, I've mentioned many times, who wrote about the Anglo-American establishment, a good book to read, and, and uh, Tragedy and Hope, of course, and, and in other papers he put out too, for within that whole managerial class managing the U.S. at that time, up until his death. But he gave you a, a portent as well of where the future was to be, take the world, uh, because the world is planned to go where it goes. It doesn't simply happen. Uh, even the financial crashes don't simply happen because you'll find the top central banking systems and so on are all, the, the chairman and the top staff are all, always come again from the, the same private organization of Council of Foreign Relations, Royal Institute for International Affairs, the Canadian branch of it, same thing, and um, Australia, New Zealand, or whatever it happens to be, or the European uh, Central Bank, they all come from the same one organization. So this one organization runs the major arms of managing all people through academia. They run the major newspapers. Their, their magnets all belong to this organization. And they run your politics too. They put their own members into, lifelong members, remember, into positions as at the top for elected government and for those unelected, the bureaucrats who are there for life. And they know in their departments what their agenda is for their whole life, basically. And they implement it. Nothing is further from the truth than there is a, than there is a democracy. But the bank crashes don't happen by themselves because you need them if you're going to change a system into a pre-planned system. Everything must fall into place, including using crisis, real or imaginary, uh, to get what you want to happen. And remember, the Bank for International Settlements is set up by the Royal Institute for International Affairs. The United Nations is set up by them. Uh, the whole idea was to get institutions to bring a, a world system in, totally controlled, by the way. And 
uh, the IMF is, uh, all the different branches that do with all monetary systems, those who are supposed to oversee it and overlook it and so on, are all members of it. And they must do what they're told, and they do do what they're told. So when bank crashes on major scales happen, it's because they want it to happen. Because they want to bring in a world system with the Bank for International Settlements, having total control of all the economies of the world, the financial systems, the exchange rates, and so on of the world until they amalgamate them all. It's quite simple, really. It's not so difficult at all to understand. Now, you find the funding for these private organizations come from the foundations, the so-called philanthropic organizations. Massive amounts of money. They're tax-exempt foundations. They have massive investments through the guys and families that start them up, lifelong investments. They're rolling in cash. And they have their own huge bureaucracies, massive bureaucracies. Some bigger, uh, these foundations have bigger ones than some governments do. Because they all have their own agendas, all worked out with their divisions of agendas to manage their countries, their blocks of countries, and then into the governmental world system as well. And they all work together. So regards to the names of the foundations, as far as I can see, they're all one big foundation as far as all policies, purpose, and so on goes. But uh, it's interesting that even Adam Weishaupt said that they would take over the forms of governments uh, by using foundations and they would control the countries. It's not a new idea by any means, but it certainly has worked for a long time now. But it's so amazing that they give you fake histories in most countries. They, they want to make you think that uh, there was some kind of utopian age back whenever. And there never was in the histories of countries. History is a horror story, to be honest with you, for most of the public. In all ages. The only temporary phase you had was with the, right after World War II, especially in the U.S. Not so much in Britain at all, but in the U.S. of prosperity for one generation that lasted, well, up until 1970s and started going down then. And the currency kept losing value, as it's designed to do, because it is truly debt money. I'm sure you all know a lot about the fact that it's all loaned into existence. And with every dollar or pound note printed, then a debt must be paid for it right, off the, right from the start. So that's a whole topic in itself, and I'm sure lots of you out there have really looked into that. But the fact is we're in a controlled managed system and those at the top guide every aspect of the cultural and social changes at all times. All times. Even the ones who are out there to rebel, uh, to get something else through. Never, the followers never understand, think they do, of course, naturally, what they're rebelling for uh, and what's going to come out of it. They think they do. But they never do. It's always, they're always getting used for some other purpose by those in the know. And these purposes today, of course, are to bring in a standardized system controlled by the same organization across the whole world. That's what these color revolutions across Europe were for. And, uh, and even in certain parts of Africa, well, even we see it in Ukraine, in fact, for that matter. These were the so start off with color revolutions, and then you start off with a real revolution. And um, it's all orchestrated from the top by unelected private foundations financing these private 
governance associations, as I like to call them. Now, to get into the topic really tonight, which I didn't mean to go off for, uh, for half an hour on something else, but it, all, but it all ties in, you see. To understand things, you have to understand the background of things, the history of things, what's behind it all, who's behind it all, and how they're doing it, and so on. But, for instance, as I mentioned about the new Soviet man, they really tried to create in the image of the state. Remember, if there's no deity, then the state is God. And that's the reason they must destroy uh, the deity uh, that's been traditional in some countries of the West, because it stood in the way of either being obedient to God totally, which sometimes meant being disobedient to the government, if it was a nasty government, for instance. And therefore, uh, any god, including the state, can have no rivals, you see, no other gods before them. And they must eliminate the system and bring in an atheistic society, training you that the state is supreme and all-powerful to have your obedience, you see. So that you actually agree with being obedient, and you won't complain about things and so on. You'll suffer gladly, as they say. Now, this system of treating a new type of human being is more blatant in some countries that are already a form of totalitarian system already, and people accept it and think it's normal. It's amazing how if you're born into a system that already exists, you think it's all quite normal. That goes across the board every culture and every nation. But if we go into the Soviet communist-type systems, then and don't, don't ever think they're different from the right-wingers because it was a so-called financial elite who set up the socialist system in the first place a long time ago. And that led to the, the communist system. And th- those who control big factories across the world were fascinated, for instance, by how uh, some countries really work much better. Low wages, hard work, never complaining, uh, a very obedient and, and timid and frightened people. Uh, that, was a, that was a great system to have, you see, especially if they're uneducated. Today in the West, you think you are educated, but you're not. The junk you're, gotten, you're taught in school uh, is way below par of what they were taught even at the, in the late 1800s, nearly 1900s in school. It's, 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 not, it's actually social indoctrination. It's social engineering on political correctness and updates for your particular generation. But if you go into, again, the same system in, in China, uh, you think, well, it's more obedient, naturally. That's the tradition. Now, here's how it goes in China with um, how the personality profiling, for instance, it goes a step further. The same. Remember what happens in China happens to the rest of the countries in turn, because we're already under a global governance, and that's a term. It's not an elected government; it's a governance system run by private uh, agencies or corporations, you might call them, and foundations, especially the one at the top. There's always a top, a cap for the, the pyramid's top, and. Here you have this article here about China. Now, think of yourself as you read it, and think of your own culture as you read it too. It's interesting. That's what I do all the time. But it said, The regulations were announced last year, but have attracted almost no attention thus far in China and abroad. 
is this week Roger Creamers, a Belgian-China specialist in Oxford University, published a comprehensive translation of the regulations regarding the social credit system. That's what's called the social credit system, which clarifies the scope of the system. In an interview with Dutch newspaper De Volkstrand, he says, with the help of the latest internet technologies, the government wants to exercise individual surveillance. Now remember, it's only if over the last few years you've had various articles in the media about Yahoo helping set up the internet system a while ago in China. I'm sure Google's involved too, all the biggies, which are all really one at the top. And they're not only collecting all the data on everyone, but they're also looking for the, 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 they also know the type of citizen they want to create there. And Yahoo have come out in the past about helping them set up the, the system in China where they actually cut off folk who looked at certain particular sites as a form of um, banning them, basically, from looking at certain sites. But it's also noted who they are and why are they, they want to know why they're interested in these particular sites or this content of information. But here's where it's going. With the, the government wants to exercise individual surveillance, it says with the help, help of the latest internet technologies. It says, in his view, this surveillance would have a wider scope than was the case under the former East German system, the Stasi. The German aim was limited to avoiding a revolt against the regime. The Chinese aim is far more ambitious. It's clearly an attempt to create a new citizen. Same old thing again, you see. It says, the intentions of the new system are not only economical, fighting fraudulent practices, but also moral. You see, here you go. This is a deliberate effort by the Chinese government to promote amongst its citizens socialist core values such as patriotism, respecting the elderly, working hard, and avoiding extravagant consumption. That's the same old agenda that's been here for an awful long time into austerity, work hard, and all the rest of it. And, and be patriotic, meaning obey the government. That's what they mean by that, when the government itself tells you to be patriotic. This is a bad credits code. And that's not just money. This is, this is other things. Can result in not being eligible for certain jobs. Housing or credit to start a company. Can't get a job yourself to death, right? On the labor market, you might need a certain score to get a specific job. Eventually, it'll be any job, you see. This is the whole key to things. And it says, when people's behavior isn't bound by their morality, a system may be used to restrict their actions. And it says, uh, explanation of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. It says, very ambitious. It's how Amazon's consumer tracking with an Orwellian political twist. It says, Johan uh, Lagervist, uh, Chinese internet specialist at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Interestingly. The Swedish Institute for International Affairs. Remember, they're all one. They're all <laughs> Institute for International Affairs in Britain. See, they all have them, you see. This is a Chinese internet specialist at the Swedish Institute. Agrees this system is very ambitious in both depth and scope, including scrutinizing individual behavior and what books people read. This is it's Amazon's consumer tracking with an Orwellian political twist. In Hong Kong, a spokesman of Human Rights Watch China, Maya Wang, sees a scary vision of the future in the system. Currently, there is intensive surveillance of sensitive groups, such as dissidents, but the social credit system goes to another level. This is an effort of surveillance of all people. 
it's actually tighter control of all people. Uh, Lagger vist questions where the system can be put into practice easily. Implementation may prove tricky due to agency turf wars and reluctance of companies to fully comply. Now that won't happen. But it's an open question. It depends how much firepower the government will give the implementation effort. Now, this isn't an idea that just sprung up, folks. The government's already obviously involved. It's going ahead. This is no doubt who's in command. This is government and big internet companies in China can exploit big data together in a way that is unimaginable in the West. Uh, it says um, the German China expert Daniela Stockman, political scientist at Leiden University, esteems Chinese internet firms uh, will be reluctant as they are aware of privacy concerns of their users, and also they struggle with their infrastructure to process huge amounts of data. But Creamers is convinced uh, Chinese internet giants like Alibaba, Baidu, uh, Tencent will cooperate with the government in operating the system. These companies are in a symbiotic relationship with the government, he argues. Whereas in the US, companies like Google or Facebook show themselves fighting for the privacy of their clients. That's a joke. They're part of the same system here, folks. Against the prying eyes of intelligence. See, I can tell you about the truth and then tell you a lie as well. In China, this is not the case. There's no doubt among key players who is in command, government and big internet companies in China can exploit the big data. And it says, um, Chinese internet firms are definitely interested as anti-financial or ant-financial, a subsidiary of uh, eco-mercy giant Alibaba recently showed. To its popular app, Alipay added a new service which rated a person's credit worthiness on a scale of 350 to 950 points. The score is not only determined by one's lending behavior, but also by hobbies and friends. If friends have a poor lending reputation, this reflects badly on the person. Understand you're going to start changing the way who's going to be your friend anymore. Or oh, don't want to be associated with them, they've got a bad score. This is all behavior management and adjustment, you see. So it's just as prolonged playing of video games, buying diapers indicates responsibility and scores therefore well. If the, the Chinese pro, press, the system has been, and in, in the press has been presented as a rather limited system focusing mostly on financial credibility. Well, naturally, that's not the real thing. But Creamer's study shows the government wants to evaluate behavior of citizens in various other areas as well, with the aim of strengthening and innovating social governance. There's that word again. According to the government, innovative will be the active contribution of citizens rating their other citizens. See? Imagine a Chinese person being able to rate his doctor for his, or his professor as is already happening in the U.S., and he or she might also have a, give a bad score to polluting companies, as the system will be applied to companies and institutions as well, says Creamers. It says, so far, the reaching scope of the system is confirmed by an explanation on the website of the Scientific Institute, CASS, C-A-S-S. That's the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. We've all got them, eh? Academy of Social Sciences. It's all how we manage you. A result of its transformation in recent decades, Chinese society has changed from a society of acquaintances into a society of strangers. As a result, more conduct has suffered, or moral conduct has suffered. But people's behavior isn't bound by their morality. A system must be used to restrict their actions. Therefore, it is time for the social credit system, which covers four major fields, politics, business, society, and justice.
going to Professor Wang Shukun, who is working on the new system, the mechanism for establishing financial credit worthiness is uh, practically ready to be put in place. Without such a mechanism, doing business in China is risky. She stresses as about half of the signed contracts are not kept. Especially given the speed of the digital economy, it's crucial that people can quickly verify each other's credit worthiness. Adding, understand this is going to end up where you'll all be policing each other. It's not just self-monitoring or self-policing, they call it, the United Nations are teaching you. You'll also be used to monitor uh, and police someone else's behavior. That's been an old idea put out years ago by Royal Institute for International Affairs and a lot of their papers and through the United Nations, which they run. And here it is being implemented to the next level. It says, this is the most staggering publicly announced scale of the use of big data I've ever seen. This is Michael Fertig, Silicon Valley entrepreneur and author of The Reputation Economy. It certainly feels about as Orwellian as your nightmares would have it. On the other hand, it's probably a fairly inevitable ev- evolution. This guy probably, <laughs> this, this guy, uh, uh, Michael Fertig, probably is a, at very least a CFR member, as he it, as it tells you one thing and then spins it in another. Uh, it says, on the other hand, it's probably a, fair, a fairly inevitable e- evolution. That's often what they'll tell you. This is inevitable. And then you say, oh, well, you know. It's an updated big data version of the long-standing Communist Party's degrading of China's citizens. It's exactly what any command state would like to do with data. Now, we've already got it here, folks. And it just simply doesn't come out and say it's doing it to you uh, overtly. But they give you bits and pieces of it in other ways, you see. And they've been collecting our data long before internet. Once the internet came along, they knew exactly what they wanted to, to glean from it all. That's why they gave it to you in the first place for controlling you and managing you better and knowing all about you all the time in real time. And if you look at all the, the politically correct adjustments that you've had over the, the last few years and what's at the top of how you must accept this and accept that and believe this about those folk and believe that about those folk, or else, this is the same thing going on here. And then a little quip you make where you don't quite like those folk for some reason or another, and that is your right, um, is monitored and you put down and flagged and all the rest of it. It's already here, believe you me. But you don't have to be so shy about letting you all know in China as they do here, you see. That's how it works. That's quite amazing. And uh, another article here too, I'll put up tonight is <laughs> nanorobotics and the invasion of privacy. I'll just touch on that quickly. Since the National Health Federation was the first to alert the public and the health freedom community about the need for a constitution for the race of mankind because of the invasion of privacy and increased vulnerability to outside control of internal bodily processes via monitoring by healthcare professionals. Science is a double-edged sword. It creates as many problems as it solves, but always on a higher level. In November 2012, the National Health Federation published a book review on the physics of the future by Machio or Machio Kaku, NHF, was the first to alert the public and the health freedom community in particular about the need for a constitution for the race of mankind. As we understood, we were about to be violated. 
excellent, albeit lengthy, book's major flaw was not carrying the technological innovations in regards to nanorobots through uh, to the ultimate conclusion, and NHF noted it. The invasion of privacy and increased vulnerability to outside control of internal bodily processes via monitoring by healthcare professionals. And it quotes uh, a preview from, or a, a quote from this book, it says, from a review. So there are so many issues to decide which ways to uh, 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 invade privacy while delivering greater information and scope of services. We have some major decisions to make as a race in the present, the future is now. Taking a proactive approach to sensitive considerations will ensure the preservation of all you hold dear now. So... So now with the development of the Internet of Things and Big Data, we've already transversed the brink of privacy invasion in the implementation of systems like epic medical record-keeping and smart meter installations. How far are we willing to go to have knowledge of our bodies and our workings? How, never mind that, all, everybody else's interest is going to have it all too. How much internal invasion will we tolerate in order to gain biodata, perform surgeries or deliver medications without using the skin as a portal of entry? Will it be worth the scientific advances to have all this data instantly uploaded, even our clothing uploaded, all our statistics as we dress in the morning? Suddenly, although clothed, we are naked and there's nothing except our thoughts that remain hidden so far anyway. Uh, so anyway, uh, it's the putting out the nanorobotic stuff through everything, your, your food, clothing, and medicine, and yada, yada, yada. Total monitoring of everything you do. And then you went to the same system of, of scoring that Russia, uh, China is using, and you'll be graded on do you eat too much, meet the wrong kinds of things, all of those kind of things, all monitored in, instant, in real time, you see. Now, getting back to the Royal Institute for International Affairs that came out a long time ago. In fact, before it was called that, it was called the Lord Alfred Milner Group. And they had another name, of course, they didn't, it was unknown to even a lot of politicians in Britain that weren't members of it. And they have a steering committee of all things on different areas of running and organizing and controlling all society and economics. And they have their inner group and their outer group. And the inner group is the ones who make the plans based on all the data that comes in from their academic sources that they use from other members of their organization. But they talked about creating up the three trading blocks for the world, United Europe, United Americas, and we've got, we've got two of them almost completely done. And you, you also have um, a third one, which is, of course, the the Asian Pacific etc. partnership, uh, the Far Eastern partnership, and eventually they all melded into one, under one governmental system, run by the same organisation that came up with the idea and made it all happen. They controls the finances, they control what's taught in academia, they control the media, etc. etc. They control sciences and all of that. Uh, the biggest changes have already happened, and the public haven't a clue they've even happened or why they happened. To the public, we just drift into things, and it's all a bit of a puzzle, but you don't worry about it because you're told not to worry about it, so you, you obey. Half of Canadians are clueless about impending Pacific Rim trade deal, it says here. And it says, now here's how they spin this too, right? This is from the National Affairs contributor, Dini Moore, who's been a member of the CFR herself, who knows? But trade representative Michael Froman, so it shows you all different people here who, who, who meet with the Pacific Rim trade ministers, including Japan and, 
and Economics Minister Akira Amari during a news conference to conclude the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, and so on and so on. We've got Singapore in there and we've got the US uh, Trade Representatives, Michael Froman, he'll be a member for and Trilateral, uh, and Singapore's Trade Minister Lim Hing Kiang meet with the Pacific. Almost half of Canadians know so little about a proposed free trade deal with Pacific Rim countries. They knew the same thing with NAFTA, almost zilch. And that's how it's done. By the way, the, the, the term fast-tracking means it bypasses some nation's Congress. It's simply all made by the private organization, Council on Foreign Relations, Relationship for International Affairs, Trilateral. In fact, it's generally the trilateral branch of that which uh, drafts it all up and they put their own men in to implement it and sign it. That's what they do with NAFTA and, and GATT and so on. But it's the same uh, trilaterals that are working on this. It says, we've come a long way from the heated debates over the first free trade deal signed with the U.S. more than 25 years ago. And Canadians are generally accepting of such deals. It's because they're totally oblivious to them or, or, or have no clue what they really are. It says, here it is, the survey released Wednesday by the Angus Reid Institute. They do the polls and all that. Now, polls first came out as a public relations exercise because in psychology they realized that people like, a lot of the people like to be in the mass, and, and the majority in an election or whatever it happens to be, and, and with the opinion of a poll, for instance. So if you put out fake statistics and say, well, 60% agreed with, oh, well, I agree with them there. You know, that's, that's what you say. Even if you don't understand it, it doesn't matter. So they're often bogus. But anyway, this, this goes on to say this article. When nearly half of Canadians say they don't know enough about a big agreement to render an opinion, that is significant, says uh, Sachi Curl, Senior Vice President at Angus Reid. Earlier this month, the public research group conducted an online survey of 1,475 people who have signed up to participate in their forum. So there you go, 1,475 people, right? And they'll say, well, that's all Canadians. No, it's not. And then they can be awfully good with it, with the way that the way it spin things. They can be very selective in who they've picked for the polls. They already know their views and opinions from previous things that have involved them in, in study groups. Just 48 percent felt they didn't know enough to form an opinion. Of the 52 percent who did have an opinion, four out of five were in favour. Really, really. Uh, there's very little. Uh, this is, is this an official like, like you do for elections? You get a vote on it? No, we don't get a vote on it. We give these fake polls. So there's very little awareness on the issue. Carl tells Yahoo Canada News. But overall, forum members appear to be increasingly supportive of trade deals. The poll found really. Ask all the thousands that lost their jobs when all the factories were moved to China under the GATT Treaty and the last one that they did with China. We are much more embracing of trade than we were a generation ago, Carol says. Really? If you go back to things like the Free Trade Agreement in 1988, it was a big national debate at the time. Was it? It was meant to be so confusing to the listener, you still hadn't a clue what it was really all about. Deliberately confusing. As we become a country that broadly and cautiously says free trade is a good thing or an okay thing, these are the same. This is the same kind of article they published almost verbatim uh, with the countries voting where to join the EU or not. It really is preferred trade partners, uh, traditional trading partners, the United States and the European Union, still top the list of preferred trade partners by 49% and 40% of respondents of this small survey, respectively. Last year, they garnered 36% and 37%. When things are not 
going, uh, are going not so great south of the border. We hear a lot of uh, conversation about how we need to talk of all our eggs uh, out of this one basket and look at diversifying and look at trading in new markets, she says. As we see the U.S. starting to look like it's rebounding and looking a bit better, it may be that there is a, a bit more of a swing back to saying let's stick with our biggest trading partners. This is so superficially vague and rubbishy. It's going to make no difference. Simply you think, well, I guess a lot of folk are for it, you know. That's the intention of the article. So if other potential partners pull uh, participants favoured China over South and Central America or India, and 40% favoured enhanced trade with China, placing it third amongst prospective partners. So, so this is a junk article, you understand. Groups including the Council of Canadians and Doctors Without Borders oppose the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, the Council of Canadians is a bogus red herring group, believe you me. They've worked with the globalists many times in the past when they pretend to oppose them. This is deals like the TPP are of modest to insignificant economic value to the country, which put importance, in, uh, importance on an environmental, social and job creation policies at risk at home and abroad. It says, but the agreement does have significant support. It says the TPP can ensure that North Americans aren't stuck on the outside looking in as rapidly growing Asian economies pursue new trade accords amongst themselves. It says the deal has not been finalised. Officials were scheduled to meet this month in Maryland. And the partnership involves 12 countries, Australia, Brunei, uh, Darussalam, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, New uh, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, the United States and Vietnam. The federal government says those countries represent a market of 792 million people and a combined GDP of $28.1 trillion, close to 40% of the world's economy. Because it's an online poll, there's no margin of error in the Angus Street Institute poll rubbish. For comparison, a traditional survey of this size would carry a margin of error of plus or minus 2.6 percentage point. That's another, that's, that's augmenting the lie, you see. So there's, there's as much news average idiot is going to get given to them by reading mainstream, you see. And then it says here in this other um, uh, mainstream, Keynes appear to be increasingly bullish about building closer ties with trading partners in the Americas, Europe and Asia, according to a new poll by the Angus Reed Institute. So they, let's see what they could say about the same study particularly in the level of support for the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership currently being negotiated amongst 12 Pacific Rim nations in Asia and the Americas. All the members at the top, the government, have to negotiate it, are all trilateral members, folks. Private organisation. And that's going to affect us all. Suppose the regulatory and investment treaty, who knew and understood it, outnumbered opponents 41 and they give you the same fake statistics and all the rest of it. Because you, you can't go by polls when, it's, when all your when your whole nation's uh, on the auction block. It's rubbish. It's not, it's not a vote. And believe you me, there's a big difference too from an education followed by an informed vote. You never get the education first. So I'll put that up as well. And then you look at the, here they are supposed to just, just, just negotiate. It's on fast track, folks. I'll bypass Congress. Congress, for instance, in the U.S. can't uh, amend anything once it's, once it's through. That's what happened with an after deal. 
So Abe and Obama looked to swift conclusion of Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. That's fast track. Since so US President Barack Obama and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe held a press conference in the Rose Garden of the White House in Washington, D.C., April 28, 2015, the Trans-Pacific Partnership does not include China. Actually, they've got, they've got trilateral members in China, too, with a different way into the same system. It's very clever. And it says here, uh, Mr. Obama was speaking at a joint press conference with Japan's Prime Minister and so on. And it says, earlier, two leaders agreed on new guidelines for defense to uh, cooperation. And it says that TPP is aimed at liberalizing markets in 12 countries, and the U.S. and Japan are amongst the biggest players. It's poised to be the world's largest ever free trade deal, and estimates uh, suggest that uh, the proposed deal could cover up to 40% of global trade. Other countries involved in the deal are Brunei, and it tells you the same once again. This is, uh, the deal has been, it's amazing how they use the same wording everywhere you look, isn't it, from the mainstream? In the same order and everything else. See, it's one source giving you all. Because the, the trilaterals run everything with the Council on Foreign Relations, all the media. The deal has been in the making for about a decade. Both leaders have advocated for the partnership, arguing that free trade will benefit their economies. Well, ask Britain if uh, joining the European Union, they're not even British anymore. As I say, if you visit Britain now, you're a foreigner in your own country. Because the borders are, are gone. And it's totally merged into Europe. Your history, everything's gone. The culture's gone. And that's going to happen in the States too, more so than it's happening already. And it says, I know that politics around trade can be hard in both countries, said Obama in the press conference Tuesday, but I know that Prime Minister Abe, like me, is deeply committed to getting this done, and I'm confident we will. Uh, Abe, by the way, the President of Japan, Prime Minister, is a member of the Japanese branch of the trilateral. It's called a different name over there, too. So it's an in-house thing, you see. And it says, both countries also recently agreed on new defence guidelines, it says that the, the security treaty covers all territories under Tokyo's administration, including islands in the East China Sea, which Beijing also claims. And it says um, the new guidance also built Japan's resolution last year to reinterpret its pacifist constitution and take on a more assertive military role, allowing Japan to defend the U.S. and other allies. So again, the world world the world army so ideal working together and so on and so on. So once again, from the mainstream, the BBC this time. You get told really nothing about it, you know, really. And then, of course, another article, too, uh, where the, the Prime Minister of Japan, Abe, as they call him, uh, comes out and says, as Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe takes a question while addressing the new conference, blah, blah, blah. And it says, um, it says, it says uh, his value, the TPP, is awesome. He says, well, that tells you, that's, that's good enough for the average person. That's awesome. It's awesome. His value is awesome. There you go. And uh, as I say, look what happened when China started. Didn't China just started making stuff all by itself and flooding the West? It was done through this private organization that gave you your central banks and run it all, with the top members being, uh, the guys who run the central banks being top members of it. Uh, and they're on your governments, your prime ministers, your presidents, uh, this private organization. And they gave you the GATT treaty and the NAFTA treaty and all the rest of them. And they gave you the, the free trade with China. 
and you saw all your factories going abroad. And you have to dig and dig and you can find that we paid for the factories to uproot in your own countries and build in China, transport and build in China. We paid for all of that because they put down as loss. And you had no jobs left. And it's never recovered. So there's another, another um, article there. It says, Obama corporate free traitor, traitors and you fast-tracking the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it says. Uh, it says, uh, the pro-big business president, Barack Obama, and his corporate allies are starting their campaign to manipulate and pressure Congress to ram through the pull-down on America Trans-Pacific Partnership, a trade and foreign investment treaty between 12 nations, and it gives you the same nations again. The first skirmish is a fast-track bill to have Congress formally strip itself of its constitutional authority to regulate trade and surrender this historic responsibility to the White House and its corporate lobbies. You're privately owned in America, if you don't know it, including your White House. By the corporate, you should call it fascism when you couldn't distinguish those in government from in private business, big corporations. And that's what you have now with the CFR, Royal for International Affairs, that their, their intention was always to, always, always to create this system. And they used the communism system because they were fascinated and studied the Soviet system of how they managed the society and updated their political correct ideas and all the rest of it uh, and gave them new ideas that they had to accept personally and part them in, in public or else you got into trouble. Uh, so they use both systems, you see. It's just unless you think the TPP is too commercially complex to bother about it, think it again. The mega treaty is the latest corporate coup d'etat that sacrifices the American consumer, labor, and environmental standards, inventively called non-tariff trade barriers, and much U.S. sovereignty to the supremacy of corporate commercial trade. No single column can adequately des- uh, describe this colossal betrayal, Camouflaged by phrases like free trade and win-win agreements. That's what they give you, these slogans, you see. For comprehensive analysis of the TPP, you can go to Global Trade Watch. And I'll put the link up tonight for that, Global Trade Watch. And it says, trade treaties like NAFTA and GATT, which created the World Trade Organization, which runs by a star chamber court, by the way, five unelected guys appointed decide who can trade with whom and who can't with different companies and all the rest of it. This already have proved records of harming our country through huge job exporting trade deficits, unemployment, freezing or jeopardizing our consumer and environmental rules, holding down regulations on giant banks and weakening labor protections. How does the corporate state and its free traders construct a transnational form of autocratic governance and that's what it is, an autocratic governance. Whenever you see governance, 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 it's autocratic, folks. They don't want you involved. It says that bypasses the powers of our branches of government and accepts decisions that greatly affect American livelihoods issued by secret tribunals, and they have their own secret tribunals run by corporate lawyers and turned judges. Well, first they establish autocratic procedures such as fast-track legislation that facilitates the creation of an absentee autocratic government which betrays the American people by going far beyond reducing tariffs and quotas. The same in Canada and elsewhere, too. So imagine when the TPP treaty finally gets negotiated with other nations in secret. The White House cynically classifies it 
as an agreement requiring a simple majority vote, not a treaty requiring two-thirds of the Congress for passage. Fast-track legislation then limits debates on the TPP to a total of 20 hours on each chamber. Then Congress lets the White House tie Congress's hands by prohibiting any amendments and requesting just an up or down vote. Meanwhile, the campaign cash flows into the abdicating lawmakers' coffers from the likes of Boeing, General Electric, Pfizer, Citigroup, ExxonMobil, and other multinational companies that show a lack of loyalty to the United States. Well, they're, they're international. And it says uh, they show a lack of loyalty to the U.S., <clears throat> no corporate patriotism, due to their ties with communist and fascist regimes abroad, who let them get away with horrible abuses and repression in the name of greater profits. Remember what Carl Quigley said, the story of the Council on Foreign Relations, which also is the branch called the, the Trilateral Group, he said, we bring in all kinds, communist dictators, uh, fascists, we don't care, he says. Because they understood that they're going to bring it all into a brand new system and use all of the techniques, combined parts of all techniques that work on managing us all. It says, many of these Pacific Rim countries, for example, have bad labor laws and practices, a few, if any, consumer or environmental protections that can be enforced in courts of law and precious little freedom of speech. A recent treat with South Korea was pushed through Congress on false predictions of jobs and win-win solutions. Actually, Korea's got, South Korea's got a lot of, uh, as government, or members of the Trilateral Commission as well. Every country has them. So, in fact, the Korean agreement resulted in a ballooning of the trade deficit that the U.S. has with that country, costing an estimated nearly 60,000 American jobs. What's great for economy? It's a win-win situation, eh? <laughs> The majority of these corporate managed trade agreements come from the demands of global corporations. And the heads of them are member of CFR and Trilateral Commission. They exploit developing countries that have cheap labor and tax laws, unlike more developed countries such as the US that have greater protections for consumers, workers and environment. Under this trade agreement, countries that seek better protections for their workers and consumers can be sued by corporations and other nations. Remarkably, better treatment such as safe motor vehicles is seen as an obstructive trade barrier against inferior imports. For one example of many under the WTO, World Trade Organization, the U.S. cannot keep out products made by brutal child labor abroad, even though U.S. law prohibits child labor in this country. This is how our sovereignty is shredded. Under the WTO, the U.S. has lost 100% of the cases brought before the secret tribunals in Geneva, Switzerland against our public interest laws, the consumer environmental protections. The TPP will produce similar autocratic outcomes. And, uh, and it goes on and on in this article too. So there's nothing democratic about any of it, of course. Yeah, the public are not involved in it whatsoever. Uh, you won't get a vote on it. Uh, the members in your Congress will vote for it are already members of the Council on Foreign Relations, so they do what they're told. And uh, another one's too, will leave politics and go into CEO positions of trilaterals and Council on Foreign Relations uh, uh, run companies. So it all works together, you see. Uh, it all, all works together. And the public get no vote, not at all. And the public never learn either. They have very short memories. Most folk have already probably forgotten 
about all the jobs, all the incredible changes since uh, the free trade negotiations and then NAFTA was ran through, and the GATT organization and the World Trade Organization saying free trade with China and all their jobs going abroad. They've already forgotten that. It's astonishing. Even the folk who, who literally lost their jobs and are working at much more meager jobs uh, today. And they have a timetable too, you understand, so that folk who lose their jobs are often replaced by a younger generation coming up who really don't know. And they'll swallow the, the propaganda more easily. They'll be, oh, well, you know, it'll be, it'll be good for us. They, they promised us jobs, jobs, jobs. <laughs> That's how the world is really run, folks. So democracy is a joke. Back to the beginning of, of my talk tonight, Charles Galton Darwin in the 1950s wrote his book, The Next Million Years. Top member of the secret organization at that time, uh, Royal Institute for International Affairs, and uh, he was also a, a physicist who worked in atomic uh, bombs, by the way. And he says, there's always been slavery in one form or another down through the ages. And we, we are in, in the process of creating a more sophisticated form of slavery. That's the new freedom you hear about, this little freight, the new freedom. George Bush Jr. said it, remember, the new freedom. Redefining freedom, folks. Because I've changed it all under the guise of terrorism. Redefining freedom. And this whole system is a new totalitarian. It's, it's, it's almost the fait accompli of the totalitarian system. And you're getting the same programming as they're getting in China, where you better accept the new politically correct updates and you must, must be for whatever they tell you before and don't have any other uh, objections to what you're being told to do. No opinion of your own. In fact, what you're told your opinion should be, you will adopt that opinion or else. You already see it with intolerance in different guises in Canada, in the US, in Britain, elsewhere for this new global society. And don't ever think it's just left-wing or right-wing. They all work at the top together and have done your whole life long, and your parents too. Because they all belong at the top to the same big private club that runs the money, that runs your government, all your policies, your educational system, your indoctrinational system, your media system, your entertainment system, and ultimately they run you. You are the product. And that's all I can cram in tonight, I'm afraid. There's um, other things to do, and I'm sure I've prattled on enough. But for those who want to look anything up at all, dig in to uh, these agreements and partnerships and all the rest of it, and dig in to the Trilateral Commission, dig in to the Council on Foreign Relations, and you'll see that they run everything in your countries. And have done for an awful long time. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods, go with you. <laughs>